As I sat at the back this morning, uh, this afternoon, I was craning my neck a little. So I'm going to invite those of you who can not see, uh, if you can push yourself to the right with the Conservatives or to the left with the Labour. Because there's nothing worse than craning. I, I've already asked that we could have perhaps a little bit of a platform here. It isn't that I want to be seen, God forbid, but um, there's nothing worse than uncomfortable listening. As, and that's at the first evangelistic point. And uh, Asa, uh, the great American evangelist, made great importance of how the seats were laid out when he preached the gospel. And uh, if he did it, I'm sure we can do it. Now, could I say this to you? Uh, if you want to know how God is dealing with me personally right now, I see that Roger has got a pile of evangelism today out on the table. And if you look at the back, it will save me saying lots of unnecessary things. It, there's a, an article that uh, Bill Spencer allowed me to put in. And if you read it, then you'll know exactly what God is doing with me now. He's doing what he did with me nine years ago. He's asking me to do the ludicrous in his name. Name. But he's perfectly ludicrous in the way he's providing. So I'm quite happy with the arrangement. But to save me talking about what I'm doing and what God is doing, if you'd like to read that, that will tell the whole story. Now, the subject is how to turn a Bible passage into a gospel message. Now, before I can do that this afternoon, there's something that I must do. I must create. Uh, it doesn't sound good to say it that way, but you must have a point of view. If you say, what do you mean? Now, I've been lecturing on evangelism for the last 27 years in the Bible College of Wales, and I lecture for three terms on evangelism, so it's hardly likely that in two and a half days we're going to cover a lot of the ground. But what I do want to say to you is this. I never assume that because a man is doing things for God, he understands the principles of evangelism. Many ministers have no idea what they mean by evangelism. When they criticize an evangelist, they possibly don't know what the evangelist stands for. And uh, evangelists are impatient with pastors because pastors may have a different slant on the work. But if I'm going to talk to you about making a gospel message, as we say, then before you can do that, I've got to establish that you've got an attitude. Now, here's what I do to the students in Wales. I say to them, you've got to make up your mind, be convinced about it, believe it, embrace it, that there is a difference between being merely evangelical and being evangelistic. And that there's a difference between being evangelical and evangelistic and knowing revival. Now, I tell the students, if you don't grasp this at the beginning, nothing else that I will say throughout the year will make sense to you. Say, so, Mr. Shepherd, we wouldn't be here today if we didn't know what evangelism is. Don't be too sure. It took me a long time to learn what evangelism was. I wouldn't call my, an, myself an evangelist for a very long time. They began to call me an evangelist. I said, oh no, I said, I'm only a speaker. 
But later on I began to see that God had called me to be an evangelist. But when you reduce that to terms to be understood, surprising how people cannot define what they think they believe. Now this is what I want you to do if you will. Will you allow me to emphasize that I believe that you could be thoroughly evangelical and yet not be evangelistic. But you cannot possibly be evangelistic if you are not evangelical. And you could be both of those and know nothing of a revival. So you're immediately asking the question, but David Shepherd, what's the difference? Now the difference I suggest to you is in the emphasis. Evangelicalism places emphasis upon conformity to biblical truth. Um, the man who introduced us to the church, uh, the church minister, emphasized that in his little talk, that we've got to be Bible oriented. Now, what is an evangelical? He is the opposite to liberal and modernist. I don't class them in the same bracket, but he's not liberal or modernist. He's evangelical. He's like the black man who, when he was asked, does he believe the Bible? He says, yes, sir, I believe that book from lid to lid. And that is an, an evangelical. He believes what the Bible says about him, not what he thinks about the Bible. He doesn't judge the Bible. He allows the Bible to judge him. And that's what I call being evangelical. But now, I say that in being an evangelistic man, you're not only evangelical... But you are doing something else where the emphasis is not primarily on conformity to truth, but on the use of means to get that truth to the people who need it. And to be preached in such a way, notice those words, to be preached in such a way that it produces a crisis in their thinking. Now, you know by observation that you listen to some men preaching and you know thoroughly evangelical. Some people spend their Sunday waiting for a man to move a comma to the left or to the right four paces. And he won't let him have dinner till he's put them back again. They want to know if he's sound and by the end they're all sound asleep. Now the thing is this, that the, amen, we are evangelical. We believe in the three R's, ruin by the fall, redemption by the blood and regeneration by the spirit. Now that's what I call being evangelical. But you can be thoroughly evangelical and never be evangelistic. There's something about being evangelistic. And I'll explain to you that it, it'll show in, in another way in a moment. But an evangelistic effort is to get that message across. The emphasis is not primarily on truth, but on the use of means to get that truth into the ears. When I'm talking to the students, I draw two parts of our anatomy on the board. I draw a heart... Uh, I beg your pardon, I, be, I draw... Uh, oh, you told me not to touch the walls, didn't you? <laughs> I, I touch, I draw an ear, and I draw a heart without the arrow. I say to the student, now, this is evangelism. It is your duty and my duty to capture the ear. God does not capture the ear. We capture the ear. Into that ear we must pour the gospel, notice these words, in such a manner... 
And I'll prove it to you from the Bible in a moment. That the Holy Spirit can win the heart. No evangelist ever wins the heart. When I say that a man told me yesterday that he said, I, I saw five people responding to Christ on Sunday night in a very ordinary Presbyterian church. If two of them were the elders, they got saved. But at the end of the day, as I go home, I say, Lord, it was you who saved them. You saved them. And if it wasn't you, then I can hope for nothing in the future. We don't win the heart. We gain the ear. And into that ear, we must pour evangelical truth in such a manner that the Holy Spirit can win the heart. Now, you can be both of those and know nothing of a revival. Uh, I'm rescuing a church from the bulldozer right now that was built by the young man God used in Wales, Evan Roberts. When he was 26, he brought Wales back to God. But when he was 19, he built this little chapel with his own hard-earned money. And uh, that's why I'm, I'm determined, God helping me, that it'll be there until the Lord returns. But he was a revivalist. One man wrote an article in the Christian Herald years ago, Does Wales have a new revivalist? Me. It did me a lot of harm, did that article. As if the Holy Spirit was grieved, I don't know. But I had to fight back to a, a position after that. Whether it brought some kind of conceit into me, I don't know. But I've never, ever claimed to be a revivalist. In America, if you have a mission lasting ten days, you're having a mighty revival. And they, they advertise, you want a revival in your church? You send for Nathaniel B. Sloan. And uh, <laughs> guaranteed, in a fortnight, you see. So, revival in America is a different word from what my father talked about. He called it the visitation of God. Now, why do I say that? You see, if we're going to talk about a gospel message, if you don't have in your mind that there's something called evangelicalism and something called evangelism, that they are disciplines that can be reduced to readable terms, people are rather surprised when you can argue for evangelism biblically. You see, Jim Packer writes a book, The Sovereignty of God and Evangelism. So Tom Reese writes a book, Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. They're having a slanging match, you see. But people are surprised when you can argue about evangelism as a divine strategy, biblically based. But I know that it took me a long time because I was brought up, you see, you can understand the problem. I was brought up in a church where they said, oh, God does it all, you see. God, when he comes. So I sat back and waited for God to come. And then God told me one day, come on up and get on with it. I don't capture the ear, you capture the ear. I win the heart, but it's through the gospel. But not just the truth, but the truth in such a manner. Now, is that biblically so? Would you look with me at something, and I've said this at a, another conference of evangelists so, a few years ago, but will you turn with me to Acts chapter 6? And there's a verse there that is highly significant. It's speaking about Stephen preaching. And it says this, that he spoke in such a manner they could not resist I find the verse, if you find it before me, tell the others, will you? But uh, he said, well, now then, I can't find the verse now. But he said, they so speak, they could not resist the spirit and the wisdom with which he spoke. Verse 10 of chapter 6. They were not able to resist, notice the two words, the wisdom and the spirit. Small s, small s. 
Dr. Schofield's new version, 3067 version, has made it a capital S. That is not what Paul, what, the, what Luke meant. It was the energy with which this man Stephen spoke. He was, he, he, he mowed them down. They say of Charles Grandison Finney that he went through his congregation and mowed them down as he rode as a man on a charger and swept everything before him. I'm still waiting for that day to happen to me. But this is the thing. You see, it wasn't just what he said. Will you please notice this? It was not just what he said, the wisdom. It was how he said it. It is the spirit. I said, good heavens, what is this? I remember preaching in a Welsh chapel in Llandaelo once. It was in Welsh. I was preaching in Welsh, you see. It, it sounded irreverent in English. But I had a, in Wales, they've got a, what they call a big seat. Uh, I don't know if they've got them in Bridgend anymore and in Neath, in Newport. But they're the big seat, the Gadir Vaur, where all the important elders sit. They're usually fat men with waistcoats and chains. And as you preach, they go, <coughs> yeah, <coughs> uh, there's a word for it, see. You're, you're being sunk up by these important people, see. Well, I was preaching one night on the four feasts, you see, and I suddenly heard one of these men say, as I said, it sounded irreverent in English, but in Welsh it's perfectly all right, Hargloid. I heard him say it. He was looking up at me, he said, Hargloid, Maur. He said, good God. You understand, now in Welsh it's not the same. I'm so glad, because they're so self-righteous, you see. Now, that's what I want. It's not enough for me to say that something is true, but it's so true, it's so true, that you'd better make, do something about it now. Now, that's the difference between evangelical preaching and evangelistic preaching. So, I say this to you, that if I'm right about, and some people are not willing for me to make this distinction, you see, let's be honest about it. Now, I was agreeably surprised to find how many of you are pastors or assistant pastors. I thought that you were all roving evangelists like me or budding ones. But I was agreeably surprised to meet uh, ministers, and especially my friend from, from Bridgend. And let's face it, when we talk about an evangelistic address, we're talking about people who may be addressing a congregation once and once only. You understand that now. You see, I was minister of our church for five years, and I preached three times a day. And to the same people, same people, when you read some of the old sermons, what theological masterpieces they were. But then, they were people who stayed in the same church for 27, 30, 40 years. And people were orientated around the Bible. But I'm thinking of a gospel address where you go in, You'll have half an hour to raise the dead, and you don't have a second chance. You don't have a second chance. Now, so th that is what I have in mind, where you've got to crystallize things there and then. I, I always like to feel, and I don't say I always succeed, that if people hear me only once, then they've heard enough to know that is the gospel. That is the gospel, and it makes them think. Now, if I'm right... And I've had 40 years to try to prove that I'm right. That there's something called evangelicalism. God bless evangelicalism. I believe it in, with all my heart. And we are a free evangelical church. This is a free evangelical church. At least an evangelical church. And uh, th that's it. You've got the idea. But what about evangelistic? See the difference? You can be evangelical without being evangelistic. But you cannot be evangelistic without being evangelical. And that's my great quarrel with some of these people who have four hours meetings, whipping all the nervous energy out of youth, and then give the advantage ten minutes at the end, see, with nothing left in the young people to respond to you. 
Now, that is horrid, and we, we, we don't like that. But now, that's the first thing I've got to say. Here's the second thing I've got to say. You're all impressed, as I've been impressed, with the dryness and the deadness of some read sermons. In other words, when you take up a book of Wesley and a book of Spurgeon, perhaps not a book of Moody's sermons, he seems to have come across the way he was. But it is a known fact that when you read the sermons which previously they preached, you ask yourself the question, now, why were, why were the multitudes moved by that sermon? It's so dull, it's so heavy, it's so ponderous. You read John Wesley's sermon on the new birth. It starts, you could think that the whole congregation were professors of theology, see? <laughs> and we're taught we're living, in a, we're living in a television age. You know, 30 seconds, 10,000 pounds. You see, 30 seconds and they've got to get it all. So, this is the thing we've got to say. I can tell you, I'm going to give you an example of turning a scriptural passage into a gospel address. But that is not what solves it. You see, you watch some people conducting orchestras. You see, do you know how to conduct music? It's four, four, Taji. One, two, three, four. One, two, three, four. One, two, three. One, two, three. Six, eight. One, two, three, four, five, six. One, two... Anybody can do that and stand like this. But you watch them conducting. They conduct from the top of their heads to the sole of their feet. They, 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 everything's coming out. Have you seen this fellow Davis going? <laughs> now, I don't ask people to be glorified Welshmen. Jeffrey King, <laughs> Jeffrey King once said, I thought that when I'd be filled with the Spirit, I'd be like a glorified Welshman. I said, dear brother Jeffrey, plenty of dead Welshmen about, I can tell you. But... You can't impose your style, but I will say this. It isn't uh, the, the, the bones of the sermon or the message, but that when you preach it, you're all in it. You're in it together. That's why I don't like microphones, because I like to go everywhere preaching the word. And I like a platform. Uh, again, <laughs> I, I, know, I know people like Spurgeon, whose voice so rolled mellifluously that he didn't need almost to raise his hand, but when he did, they were significant. Uh, therefore, I've got to be careful, but one thing is clear. One man can say something, and it is dead. Another man can say the same thing. It's alive. It's alive. So, you've, you've got to be in your message. You are in your message. Your message is part of you. When we come to talk about the passion of preaching, that arises from being thrilled with truth, thrilled with divine truth. My dear old dad was thrilled with Bible truth. He cried. He couldn't tell me about David and Goliath. He cried when the big man toppled over because of the little man. It was so thrilling. Now, Therefore, we'll talk about preaching a sermon, making a passage. I was in Canada a short while ago, and God gave me wonderful liberty. Thank him for it. A Canadian man came up to me. Do you think, he said, Mr. Shepherd, that there are levels, levels of light given to people? Because, you know, I've looked at those passages you preached on so many times, and I saw nothing there. But today, they said... They made sense. Of course they he said that's what they mean. But I never saw it. Well now I can't understand that. Can't understand that. One thing about dear Roger here, he, he he's gone into the Word of God expecting to see something exciting. And uh, when you're excited yourself, it begins to excite people. Now, 
that's the, those are the two things I've got to say. What is an evangelistic message? And I can quote no better than the man who led me to Christ. Dear Roy Hessian was a master evangelist. To see Roy in action, it was an education. What I called theology in miniature. But I cried my eyes out for sinners. I saw poor things, they're all trapped. As Roy blocked this exit and that exit and that exit and this exit and that exit. And the prisoner said, where do I go? Through this door. This door. Jesus. I'm so sorry for sinners. As Roy went to town. Podgy. I should call him the all-round evangelist. But he was a great man for preaching. But it was, yeah, the man was in it. The man was in it and he was excited. Now, he defined an evangelistic message in this. It is a message that precipitates a crisis. It precipitates a crisis in people's thinking and people's reaction. Now, I went, to a, I went to the wedding of one of my nieces. She wanted Uncle David to preach in her wedding. And when I got there, the, the, the bridegroom's side, they were admirals and doctors and lawyers, all the gold braid about the place. It was, mind you, all the importance was that size, but all the quality was this size. <laughs> anyway, I got up that day and I preached the gospel. After all, I wouldn't preach anything else. Now, I was surprised at the way English people came up to me. Uh, a captain in the army said, he said, good, good heavens, he said, man. He said, that thing you said today, that thing, that, um, you know, that, uh, that thing. <laughs> he didn't know what to call it. He said, is it a message or that word from God? Or he, didn't know what it was, he didn't know what it was about. But suddenly, they felt, oh, I'm involved, I'm involved. Now, let me tell you a little secret. Paul has said to us for God, if you will judge yourself, you shall not be judged. Let me say that again. You know there's a judgment day coming and God is going to judge the world in righteousness. But, says Paul, if you want to escape that judgment, then be willing to be judged now. Because if you judge yourself, then you shall not be judged. When you preach, you are calling people to a mini-judgment. And you compare some of these superficial rallies full of soul and sensuality with a sense of eternity, what I call tasting the powers of the world to come whereof we speak. Boy, what a gap there is through them, between them. So now I say this to you, that there's, there's got to be something that brings a crisis, a crisis. People have got to attend their own judgment in advance. And I tell them, and if you're willing to attend this judgment today then you'll never need to stand in that great judgment at the last day. Would you ask yourself to, whether you sense this crisis, either in your preaching or in those you listen to, and in the atmosphere of some of the rallies? It's usually the atmosphere of, look, we're all a lovely bunch of people, why don't you join us? As if to say, we're like you really. I say, pardon me, we are not like them. We're not offering more joys to the unconverted, but different joys. Our Christian life is not better than theirs. It's different. It's different. And we are bringing people to a crisis. Well now, uh, what I must do, I suppose, is to give you examples. I heard a man once preach, uh, and I remember to this day, the way he preached on the woman who touched the hem of Christ's garment. Do you remember that lovely story? And it says this, she had spent her money on the physicians and got worse. 
Instead of getting better, she got worse. Doctors don't like to hear you preaching on that chapter. It's a bad testimony. But it's a significant thing, you see. She got worse. And I heard this man from Porthcawl, Porthcawl, as you know, not far from you. I can remember to this day the way he preached the gospel. The gospel in its necessity. She had tried everything. And it didn't work. The gospel in its public simplicity. She touched. She just touched the hem of his garment. Thirdly, the gospel in its publicity. Jesus called her out of the crowd. In case she went away, she said, Oh, you want to see Christ's garment? Fantastic. You know, the robe. <laughs> and, and, the, and the relics. No, Christ said, It's not the robe. I'm telling you that your sins are forgiven. Now, there's a lovely way to preach that story. The gospel in its necessity. You try everything and you don't get better, you get worse. The gospel in its simplicity. She touched. Who touched me? And there's a lovely text. Who touched me? I preached on it once. Oh, I, forget, I think I only preached on it once. And notice this I do. Everyone has his own method. Methodists say in preaching, start slow, rise higher, catch fire. You haven't heard that, have you? Well, you heard it now. But that's the method, is it? Start slow. <coughs> well, uh, the text for this evening will be found uh, in the major prophet uh, Ezekiel. And, and, <laughs> sound like Dr. Martin for a minute. <laughs> now, each man has his method. If I don't feel that I fix their attention straight away on what we're talking about, so that nothing else will obtrude. I don't know about you, I like to have my reading away from my message. And I don't allow anyone to read the Bible unless they read well. I won't allow them. I heard a woman read the Bible in our church 43 years ago. They needn't have preached the reading. Daniel's great feast with Belshazzar. We were all there. We saw the handwriting. We saw his knees shaking. It was fantastic. Oh, yes. You know, get, uh, let, them be, let their minds be focused for a while on what you're going to talk about. Now, when we get in, when we get in, if I don't get in straight away. Friends of mine, I want to imagine that 500 of you are leaving tonight. And as you crowd to the doors, I come up to you and say, pardon me, my friend, who touched you? You say, what do you mean, who touched me? I must have touched scores of people as we went through the doors. Do you know that Jesus Christ, in the middle of a huge crowd... Notice that one person that touched him. I say, what kind of savior is this who is touched with the feeling of our infirmities, says the letter to the Hebrews. Now, I like to anchor, if I can. Now, this is, let me give you an example, the most obvious example, and I'd be very surprised if this isn't very simple. You turn with me to Luke chapter 10, and I don't know, I, I must speak for myself announcing that the reading is from Luke chapter 10, verse 25, in the authorized version. I tell them at the end where it was, because the people don't have their Bibles anyway, and Christians don't bring them. I tell them, the Bible you don't bring on Sunday, you probably don't read in the weekday. So, I read it, and um, we read, you see. Now, behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Master... What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said unto him, What is written in the law? How readest thou? And he answering said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, 
and with all thy soul and with all thy strength and with all thy mind and thy neighbor as thyself. And he said unto him, Thou hast answered right, this do, and thou shalt live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus answering said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and fell among thieves who stripped him of his raiment, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. By chance they came down a certain priest that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise a Levite, when he was at the place, came and looked on him, and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, notice those words, as he journeyed, it doesn't say he was going down, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion on him, and went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring in oil and wine, and set him on his own beast, and brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the host, and said unto him, Take care of him, and whatever thou spendest more, when I come again, I will repay thee. Which now of these three thinkest thou was neighbor unto him that fell among the thieves? And he said, He that showed mercy on him. Then said Jesus unto him, Go, and do thou likewise. Now, let me commend every one of you first. When you got up to say who you were, you spoke extremely well. People preach for God as though they had toffees in their mouths. You know Richard Burton, the Welsh actor, and I had the doubtful compliment paid me that I remind some people of him. <laughs> I wouldn't mind having his wealth, mind. <laughs> But when he went to his teacher to say he wanted to be an actor, he was talking like that, see? Oh, they said, we, you can't be an actor with a voice like that. Do you know that Richard Burton went up to the hills of Wales every morning for two or three hours to bring his voice down, down, down? And they say that the greatest thing about him was his voice. Sorry to introduce film stars into this holy convocation. But you see how he labored to be a great speaker for God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, you say, what, a, what, a, what an eloquent man he was. But he went down to the Houses of Parliament. I think he says that in the book which was quoted today on preachers and preaching. To listen to the politicians. Listen to Wedgwood Ban. I don't like that man, but he can speak. And uh, I was very impressed, as you all got up today, you had good voices. Now, use them. Uh, make the most of them, so that you are getting across to the people. I wish I had a better one than I have, but I've always tried to make the most of it. Now, when we read this story, here's a well-known story. How are you going to get this message across to the people? Now, here's my first point. If you can't get agreement from the people in the first few seconds, you may not get it at all. Never strike a controversial note in the first few seconds. You've got to get people to be whistling. That's why there's something to be said for choosing a passage that's recognizable. I often preach on the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer. Oh, you say, Mr. Shepherd, you're not going to preach on the Lord's Prayer tonight. We know the Lord's Prayer. Ah, I say, you think you know the Lord's Prayer, but wait and see. And away we go. Now, this is how I would approach. I want people to know that they are familiar with something called the Samaritans. 
I say, my friend, I would say, if I were preaching on this, now, my friend, I'd be very surprised if you had never picked up your newspaper and seen an advert saying, troubled, feeling like suicide, ring the Samaritans. Now, I guarantee you that you use that word again and again, you've seen it, and never known where it came from. Well, I tell you where it came from. It came from Jesus. Oh, you say, yes, and what a lovely little story. How lovely, a man being nice to his pal. I said, if you think that's all Jesus had to say, you better think again. I mean, you don't need to be a Christian to be nice to your neighbor. Jesus said, you being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children. Do you know what Jesus Christ did in this story? He ripped the lid of society. He ripped the lid of society. Now, then I, I, I hope when I've done that, I've got them listening. Oh, Samaritans, I thought I knew what they were about. Ripping the lid of society. Friend, I tell you what we're going to see here today. You're going to see a man, and he's at the middle of three forces. One, two, three. The man, we are told, is going down. And I want you to know this, whatever Bronowski says, and we've heard the lectures on the television, on the ascent of man, you've heard it, ascent of man, I said, pardon me, man is not ascending, he's on the way down. A certain man went down, from where? Jerusalem to Jericho. Jerusalem was the city of God, full of light. Jericho was under the curse of God. And your journey, my friend, is not upwards. It is downwards. Stand up, my... I, I say to them, stand up. You men, stand up. Tell me, tell me, that during the last 60 years, you've been going up and up. Financially, maybe so. But tell me the truth now. In your life, are you a better man or a worse man? Are you a better woman or a worse woman? Nobody grows better, only worse. Like a rotten apple, it doesn't get less rotten, only more rotten. Now, let's be honest about it. We're not on the way up. And because he was on the way down, notice what happened to him. He fell among thieves. You know, somebody once asked the question, are we sinners because we sin, or do we sin because we're sinners? Have you ever heard that? Are you a sinner because you sin, or do you sin because you're a sinner? Well, purists want to say, well, it's both. But the real truth is, we meet the thieves because we're on the way down. Why are you so easily beaten, so easily robbed? See, we're on the way down, we're on the way down. Now, here's the story of man. Man is not the victor, he is the victim. He's not on the way up, he's on the way down. And if you don't accept that, then you've got no answer. The problem of evil that Professor George spoke about. I'm giving you now more details, and, and I wouldn't be speaking, I wouldn't be pausing. You know what I mean? I wouldn't be pausing for breath. I wouldn't be letting them pause for breath. You understand, I feel, I, I, and I, the terrible thing about giving a talk like this, Roger, is that it is assumed that you're a master, which I know I am not. But I know one thing, I've got to get in there, I've got to get in there. And from the moment I get in, they mustn't be allowed to think of anything else. If somebody coughs, I repeat what I said, because they won't have heard those who were sitting next to them. <laughs> you know, if a butterfly starts flying, I, I slaughter him quickly. <laughs> Now, some people don't worry about that. They can let their kids run up and down the aisle. I can't. If I'm not in in the first minute, I'm not in at all. And once I'm in, I feel I've got to stay there till nobody's allowed to think of anything else for the next half hour But what we're talking about. What we're talking about. Now, here we go. My friend, tonight, do you know what you are? You're like the story of this man. You are in the middle of three forces. Here they are. Force number one, the thieves. Force number two, priests and Levites. Force number three, a good Samaritan. 
what do they represent? They represent three philosophies in life. And this has been a standard way of describing this story. You see, thieves say to you, what's yours is mine, if I can get it. The priest and the Levite says, what's mine is mine, if I can keep it. But the good Samaritan says, what's mine is yours, if you'll have it. And friend, that is where you have the total gospel. There's a philosophy in this world that says, what's yours is mine, if I can get it. And what's the result? There's an evil power called sin, the tool of the devil. Look what he's done with you, stripped you, wounded you, and left you half dead. There you go into detail, don't you? Do you know the best preachers? And here again, I don't know that I'm the... I think Don Summers is good at this. I haven't heard Don for a long time. Dick Saunders is good at it. At showing people their poverty... Showing them their real position. Somebody was reporting some time ago uh, an afternoon conference of the church. Four hours it, wa- it lasted. And when they wrote, read the report, it says, four hours of concentrated irrelevance. It had nothing to do, nothing to do with, with people. Now, if you can show a man, you're, you're, stripped, you're stripped of your purity. Do you know what I've said to congregation? Who'd like to stand up? And if you can't speak like this to people, you've no right to speak at all. Finney used to say, you must look them in the eye. If I can't look at you in the eye when I'm preaching. Nothing worse than a man who says, you know, I don't like to tell you this, but you know, we're all sinners. Who, Siddler Baxter once rose his voice at Filey. <laughs> I wasn't there, but I heard. You know, Siddler, you know, you know, you know Siddler, Siddler Baxter is a great Bible exponent. See, and he was rolling out, calling himself Sid. The Lord called him Sid. And suddenly there was a peroration, see, and he lifted up his voice. And the next moment he said, they told me, my dear people, did I raise my voice at you? I thought, dear brother, I don't do anything else, you see. Now, I'm I'm shouting, ranting and raving, but I say to people, would you like to stand up? Would you like to stand up now and say, I'm as clean as the day I saw the first light of day. Come now. Come now. You men turn out what's in your wallets. You men turn out what's in your books at home in your shelves. Do you talk like that? Well, if I don't, how do they know? How do they know? Mind you, again, I'm speaking as one man in his way. They say, they say of Murray McChain of Scotland, who I think died when he was about 29, and moved Scotland to its death. They said his denunciations were terrific. They were so tender. So I've got to be careful. But I tell you what I feel. I've got to make people feel, how robbed I am. How robbed. How stripped of my manliness. You women said ten years ago, I can do a lot of things, but I'd never do that. But by today you're doing it. You said you'd never smoke, but you're smoking now. You said you'd never gamble, you're gambling now. You said you'd never have an abortion, but you've had one now. What's happened to you? You've gone down, you've gone down, you've got stripped, you've got beaten up, left. You've got to see the man in his need. And you've got to see sin as a hateful thing. What's yours is mine if I can get it. Young woman, there's a devil who said what's yours is mine. If I can, if I can get your purity, I'll get it. If I can get your honesty, I'll get it. Get your crookedness, I'll get it. But now, there's another philosophy. What's mine is mine, if I can keep it. Priest and a Levite come down. But you know the story so well. But you see, they must have been on their way to a conference on how to improve the church witness. I don't know. (laughs) 
But uh, at the end of the day, if you'd asked a man, and now this is how I would put it, instead of going into details about the priest and the Levite, that one represented the law, and the other represented sacrifices, you can do that. You know, they represent two aspects of religion, scribe, a priest and a Levite. The, a Levite was, in one sense, a man who gave the law, but he was very much a, a writer. The priest was the administrator of God's method of forgiveness. But I wouldn't go into detail. Friends, if I met that man later and said, excuse me, a priest and a Levite pass away, what do they do for you? He'd have to answer, nothing. Nothing. I think that sums it up. Let me give you a little secret now, a little, a little tip. There was a great man in Wales years ago. His name was R.B. Jones. He was the principal of the Porth Bible Training Institute. I don't know whether you've heard of that, but he was a great college. He was a great scholar and a great preacher, R.B. Jones. He was used of God in revival in North Wales at the same time that Evan Roberts was used in revival in South Wales. But people don't realize that, you see. Now, he used to give his students an exercise every day throughout the term. He'd give them a chapter of the Bible which they had to read when they got to their rooms. He said, when you come back in the morning, I want you all to sum up what that chapter taught in one statement. One terse, if you like, aphorism. And then said the students, well, it was a little bit before my time, but I met the students. Who they said, Harvey Jones could sum up a whole chapter. For example, take the story of Saul. This is how he summed up his story. The voice of God unheeded becomes the voice of God unheard. He summed it all up. You remember Saul had to go to the witch? Now the same thing applies to preaching the gospel. You've got to somehow or other turn it into a point. That you press home all the time. You let nobody off the hook until you've pressed it. See, in a javelin, it's the point that pierces. You can't throw the point without the shaft, but the shaft is not what pierces. It's the point. Now, I'll be honest with you. I've heard people like Louis Palo preaching. I was on the platform with Louis many times, and he broke all the rules of what I call evangelistic preaching. I would take one point and push it home, push it home. Louis would have a convention address. He talked about marriage and business and sex and you name it, and Louis had it in his talk. How people ever responded, I don't know, but they did. So I've got to admit, you know, there's nothing so humiliating as when you preach your heart out and somebody gets saved and you say, which part of the message impressed you? <laughs> well, they say, actually, there's something the secretary said in the notices. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a curate. It's like a curate in the Church of England was preaching and at the end the bishop was present. They were walking home and he was fishing for compliments, you see. He wanted to know how he had done, so he was trying to draw the bishop. And the bishop said, you know, my friend, he said, there was one passage in your sermon that impressed me greatly tonight. Oh, my Lord, he said, and which one was that? It was the passage from the pulpit to the vestry, he said. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, it's rather humiliating. So... When I've said all this, when I've said all this, I'm saying it the way I would say it. I'm saying what it should be. But I say this to you, that you, you, you've got to precipitate a crisis. If you talk about being nice to our neighbors, everybody knows that about the Good Samaritan. But you see, what is the real story? Well, we'll come to it in a moment. There's a punchline. I, I've, I've sometimes called this the story with a sting in the tail. Tonight, my friend, I'm going to tell you about a story with a sting in the tail.
Oh, and what story is that? It's the story of the Good Samaritan, which you think you know so well. And away we go. You see the sting in the tail in a moment. But now, first of all, you and I, dear friends, are living in a world where we are at the mercy of three philosophies. One, a sinful philosophy. What's yours is mine if I can get it. Two, a selfish philosophy. What's mine is mine if I can keep it. But there's one other philosophy, and it comes from heaven. What's mine is yours if you'll have it. The Good Samaritan is a picture of someone coming where he was, where he was, risking, risking the danger of the thieves who may be lurking there. Who's to tell? They'd be still there, but he didn't care. He was prepared. And later on, of course, as we know, he died on the cross. But this is the philosophy. Tonight, I say to people, God is saying to you, what's mine is yours, if you'll have it. And I want you to say to God, that, dear God, Ah, uh, from the day of my birth, I've been on the way down. I've seen people in my village going down quickly. I haven't run down so quickly, but just as surely. I'm on my way down. I know it. As a boy, I was open to these things. Today, I'm a cynical businessman. I know I've run down. I used to be a loving woman, but now I'm bitter. I say the sin of women is bitterness. Sin of men is cowardice. It won't hurt them to be told that. For them to see... The picture of a humanity, not on the way up. That's a good point for you. If, friends, I've said, friends, and I suddenly lift up my voice. Friends, I said, if, if, if God is the most high, if he's the most high, where do you go when you leave God? There's only one answer, down. Where can you go when you leave the most high? If you leave the North Pole in 360 directions, you can only go south. Only go south. Men have got to see that. That's why you are easy me to temptation. That's why you're easy me to booze. That's why you're easy me to immorality. See, this man was on the way down. If he hadn't been on the way down, he wouldn't have met the thieves. But that's why. But somebody has come tonight and says, What's mine is yours. Gave his life for you. Wants to give his life to you. Could I ask you this question now? I was invited one day to go down to the field and I must watch the clock. I was invited to go down to the fields one day. A man had committed suicide. They said, David, come down. There's a man committed suicide. And when I went down, this pathetic little man was lying in the hedge with his throat cut, with a big, big gaping hole in his throat. He slashed his wrists as well. And he couldn't talk to me. He wasn't quite dead. But there, within a leap of eternity, I got down on my knees beside him. There were some men there, but I didn't care about the men. And I said, now listen to me. I said, you can't talk. I said, but listen, 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 I said. Let me ask you now. How would you reduce the gospel to a proposition you can get across to a man in two minutes? As a good test of your preaching. Somebody said, look, I put this to Jehovah's Witnesses when they come to my door. I said, I was called down to a man there committing suicide. You've got four minutes. He's going to meet God. Get him ready quick. Hurry up now. I don't tell him to become faithful and join the 144,000 and go to the Kingdom Hall. I said, there's one minute gone already. <laughs> now, come on, tell, tell me what you're going to tell him. And they didn't know where to go. It's a good test when you can reduce this eternal gospel to a point that pierces. I wish I could do it better. But now, this is it.